tree part one everyone who has traveled over eastern england knows the smaller country houses with which it is studded the rather dank little buildings usually in the italian style surrounded with parks of some 80 to 100 acres for me they have always had a very strong attraction with the gray paling of split oak the noble trees the mirrors with their reed beds and the line of distant woods then I like the pillared portico perhaps stuck onto a red brick Queen Anne house which has been faced with stucco to bring it into line with the Grecian taste of the end of the 18th century, the hall inside, going up to the roof, which hall ought always to be provided with a gallery and a small organ. I like the library, too, where you may find anything from a Psalter of the 13th century to a Shakespeare quarto. I like the pictures, of course, and perhaps most of all I like fancying what life in such a house was when it was first built, and in the piping times of landlord's prosperity, and not least now, when, if money is not so plentiful, taste is more varied and life quite is interesting. I wish to have one of these houses, and enough money to keep it together and entertain my friends in it modestly. But this is a digression. I have to tell you of a curious series of events which happened in such a house as I have tried to describe. It is Castringham Hall in Suffolk. I think a good deal has been done to the building since the period of my story, but the essential features I have sketched are still their Italian portico, square block of white house, older inside than out, park with fringe of woods, and mirror. The one feature that marked out the house from a score of others is gone. As you looked at it from the park, you saw on the right a great old ash tree growing within half a dozen yards of the wall, and almost or quite touching the building with its branches. I suppose it had stood there ever since Castringham ceased to be a fortified place, and since the moat was filled in and the Elizabethan dwelling house built. At any rate, it had well nigh attained its full dimensions in the year 1690. In that year the district in which the hall is situated was the scene of a number of witch trials. It will be long, I think, before we arrive at a just estimate of the amount of solid reason if there was any. Which lay at the root of the universal fear of witches in old times. Whether the persons accused of this offense really did imagine that they were possessed of unusual power of any kind, or whether they had the will at least, if not the power, of doing mischief to their neighbors, or whether all the confessions, of which there are so many, were extorted by the mere cruelty of the witch-finders these are questions which are not, I fancy, yet solved. And the present narrative gives me pause. I cannot altogether sweep it away as mere invention. The reader must judge for himself. Castringham contributed a victim to the auto de fe. Mrs. Mothersoul was her name and she differed from the ordinary run of village witches only in being rather better off and in a more influential position. Efforts were made to save her by several reputable farmers of the parish. They did their best to testify to her character, and showed considerable anxiety as to the verdict of the jury. But what seems to have been fatal to the woman was the evidence of the then proprietor of Castringham Hall Sir Matthew Fell. He deposed to having watched her on three different occasions from his window, at the full of the moon, gathering sprigs, from the ash tree near my house. She had climbed into the branches, 
clad only in her shift, and was cutting off small twigs with a peculiarly curved knife, and as she did so she seemed to be talking to herself. On each occasion Sir Matthew had done his best to capture the woman, but she had always taken alarm at some accidental noise he had made, and all he could see when he got down to the garden was a hare running across the path in the direction of the village. On the third night he had been at the pains to follow at his best speed, and had gone straight to Mrs. Mothersole's house, but he had had to wait a quarter of an hour battering at her door, and then she had come out very cross, and apparently very sleepy, as if just out of bed. And he had no good explanation to offer of his visit. Mainly on this evidence, though there was much more of a less striking and unusual kind from other parishioners, Mrs. Mothersole was found guilty and condemned to die. She was hanged a week after the trial, with five or six more unhappy creatures, at Bury St. Edmunds. Sir Matthew Felt, then deputy sheriff, was present at the execution. It was a damp, drizzly March morning when the cart made its way up the rough grass hill outside Northgate, where the gallows stood. The other victims were apathetic or broken down with misery, but Mrs. Mothersole was, as in life so in death, of a very different temper. Her, poisonous rage, as a reporter of the time puts it, did so work upon the bystanders yet, even upon the hangman that it was constantly affirmed of all that saw her that she presented the living aspect of Ahmed Devel. Yet she offered no resistance to the officers of the law, lonely she looked upon those that laid hands upon her with so direful and venomous an aspect that as one of them afterwards assured me the mere thought of it preyed inwardly upon his mind for six months after. However, all that she is reported to have said was the seemingly meaningless words, there will be guests at the hall, which she repeated more than once in an undertone. Sir Matthew Fell was not unimpressed by the bearing of the woman. He had some talk upon the matter with the vicar of his parish, with whom he traveled home after the assize business was over. His evidence at the trial had not been very willingly given, he was not specially infected with the witch-finding mania, but he declared, then and afterwards, that he could not give any other account of the matter than that he had given, and that he could not possibly have been mistaken as to what he saw. The whole transaction had been repugnant to him, for he was a man who liked to be on pleasant terms with those about him, but he saw a duty to be done in this business, and he had done it. That seems to have been the gist of his sentiments, and the vicar applauded it, as any reasonable man must have done. A few weeks after, when the moon of May was at the full, vicar and squire met again in the park, and walked to the hall together. Lady Fell was with her mother, who was dangerously ill, and Sir Matthew was alone at home, so the vicar, Mr. Crome, was easily persuaded to take a late supper at the hall. Sir Matthew was not very good company this evening. The talk ran chiefly on family and parish matters, and, as luck would have it, Sir Matthew made a memorandum in writing of certain wishes or intentions of his regarding his estates, which afterwards proved exceedingly useful. When Mr. Crome thought of starting for home, about half past nine o'clock, Sir Matthew and he took a preliminary turn on the graveled walk at the back of the house. The only incident that struck Mr. Crome was this, they were in sight of the ash tree which I described as growing near the windows of the building, when Sir Matthew stopped and said, What is that that runs up and down the stem of the ash? 
It is never a squirrel. They will all be in their nests by now. The vicar looked and saw the moving creature, but he could make nothing of its color in the moonlight. The sharp outline, however, seen for an instant, was imprinted on his brain, and he could have sworn, he said, though it sounded foolish, that, squirrel or not, it had more than four legs. Still, not much was to be made of the momentary vision, and the two men parted. They may have met since then, but it was not for a score of years. Next day Sir Matthew Fell was not downstairs at six in the morning, as was his custom, nor at seven, nor yet at eight. Hereupon the servants went and knocked at his chamber door. I need not prolong the description of their anxious listenings and renewed batterings on the panels. The door was opened at last from the outside, and they found their master dead in black. So much you have guessed. That there were any marks of violence did not at the moment appear, but the window was open. One of the men went to fetch the parson, and then by his directions rode on to give notice to the coroner. Mr. Crome himself went as quick as he might to the hall, and was shown to the room where the dead man lay. He has left some notes among his papers which show how genuine a respect and sorrow was felt for Sir Matthew, and there is also this passage, which I transcribed for the sake of the light it throws upon the course of events, and also upon the common beliefs of the time. There was not any the least trace of an entrance having been forced to the chamber, but the casement stood open, as my poor friend would always have it in this season. He had his evening drink of small ale in a silver vessel of about a pint measure, and tonight had not drunk it out. This drink was examined by the physician from Barry, a Mr. Hodgkins, who could not, however, as he afterwards declared upon his oath, before the coroner's quest, discover that any matter of a venomous kind was present in it. For, as was natural, in the great swelling and blackness of the corpse, there was talk made among the neighbors of poison. The body was very much disordered as it laid in the bed, being twisted after so extreme a sort as gave too probable conjecture that my worthy friend and patron had expired in great pain and agony. And what is as yet unexplained, and to myself the argument of some horrid and artful designee in the perpetrators of this barbarous murder, was this, that the women which were entrusted with the laying out of the corpse and washing it, being both said persons and very well respected in their mournful profession, came to me in a great pain and distress both of mind and body, saying, what was indeed confirmed upon the first view, that they had no sooner touched the breast of the corpse with their naked hands than they were sensible of a more than ordinary violent smart and aching in their palms, which, with their whole forearms, in no long time swelled so immoderately, the pain still continuing, that, as afterwards proved, during many weeks they were forced to lay by the exercise of their calling, and yet no mark seen on the skin. Upon hearing this, I sent for the physician, who was still in the house, and we made as careful a proof as we were able by the help of a small magnifying lens of crystal of the condition of the skin on this part of the body, but could not detect with the instrument we had any matter of importance beyond a couple of small punctures or pricks, which we then concluded were the spots by which the poison might be introduced, remembering that ring of Pope Borgia, with other known specimens of the horrid art of the Italian poisoners of the last age. So much is to be said of the symptoms seen on the corpse. As to what 
I am to add, it is merely my own experiment, and to be left to posterity to judge whether there be anything of value therein. There was on the table by the bedside a Bible of the small size, in which my friend punctual is in matters of less moment, so in this more weighty one used nightly, and upon his first rising, to read a said portion. And I taking it up not without a tear duly paid to him which from the study of this poorer adumbration was now passed to the contemplation of its great original it came into my thoughts, as at such moments of helplessness we are prone to catch at any the least glimmer that makes promise of light, to make trial of that old and by many accounted superstitious practice of drawing the sorts, of which a principal instance, in the case of his late sacred majesty the blessed martyr king, Charles and my lord Falkland, was now much talked of. I must needs admit that by my trial not much assistance was afforded me, yet. As the cause and origin of these dreadful events may hereafter be. Surged out, I set down the results, in the case it may be found that they pointed the true quarter of the mischief to a quicker intelligence. Than my own. I made, then, three trials, opening the book and placing my finger upon certain words, which gave in the first these words, from Luke 13 7, cut it down, in the second, Isaiah 13 20, it shall never be inhabited, and upon the third experiment, Job 36 30, her young ones also suck up blood. This is all that need be quoted from Mr. Crome's papers. Sir Matthew Fell was duly coffined and laid into the earth, and his funeral sermon, preached by Mr. Crome on the following Sunday, has been printed under the title of, The Unsearchable Way, or, England's Danger and the Malicious Dealings of Antichrist, it being the vicar's view, as well as that most commonly held in the neighborhood, that the squire was the victim of a recrudescence of the popish plot. His son, Sir Matthew II, succeeded to the title and estates. And so ends the first act of the Castringham tragedy. It is to be mentioned, though the fact is not surprising, that the new baronet did not occupy the room in which his father had died. Nor, indeed, was it slept in by anyone but an occasional visitor during the whole of his occupation. He died in 1735, and I do not find that anything particular marked his reign, save a curiously constant mortality among his cattle and livestock in general, which showed a tendency to increase slightly as time went on. Those who are interested in the details will find a statistical account in a letter to the Gentleman's Magazine of 1772, which draws the facts from the baronet's own papers. He put an end to it at last by a very simple expedient, that of shutting up all his beasts in sheds at night, and keeping no sheep in his park. For he had noticed that nothing was ever attacked that spent the night indoors. After that the disorder confined itself to wild birds, and beasts of chase. But as we have no good account of the symptoms, and as all night watching was quite unproductive of any clue, I do not dwell on what the Suffolk farmers called the Castringham Sickness. The second Sir Matthew died in 1735, as I said, and was duly succeeded by his son, Sir Richard. It was in his time that the great family pew was built out on the north side of the parish church. So large were the squire's ideas that several of the graves on that unhallowed side of the building had to be disturbed to satisfy his requirements. Among them was that of Mrs. Mothersole, the position of which was accurately known, thanks to a note on a plan of the church and yard, 
both made by Mr. Chrome. A certain amount of interest was excited in the village when it was known that the famous witch, who was still remembered by a few, was to be exhumed. And the feeling of surprise, and indeed disquiet, was very strong when it was found that, though her coffin was fairly sound and unbroken, there was no trace whatever inside it of body, bones, or dust. Indeed, it is a curious phenomenon, for at the time of her burying no such things were dreamt of as resurrection men, and it is difficult to conceive any rational motive for stealing a body otherwise than for the uses of the dissecting room. The incident revived for a time all the stories of witch trials and of the exploits of the witches, dormant for forty years, and Sir Richard's orders that the coffin should be burnt were thought by a good many to be rather foolhardy, though they were duly carried out. Thank you for listening, see you in the next part, don't forget to share.